What up, peeps? 1 p.m. Eastern time, Monday, June 13th. I'm feeling good about things. Obviously, a disappointing weekend. If you're a New York Ranger fan, that's okay. A great season, Dan. I think you would agree with that. Guy Adami here. Uh, the aforementioned Dan Nathan always joins me for Market Call. And in just a brief few minutes, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charter will be joining us. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange powers us. Check them out at Open Exchange TV on the Twitter. Uh, Dan, before we start, I just want to say to folks out there, if you've never seen the movie Chinatown with Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, you might have an opportunity to sort of preview it here in a few minutes. But I'll leave that be. Off to you. How are you, Dan? I, I see where you're going. First of all, you know, our Market Call fans guy, they, they 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 locked into a tweet that you sent over the weekend, or maybe I sent over the weekend, and we had a curious incident where I headed up to the Bronx to see the Yankees. You headed up to the Bronx to see the Yankees. I had no idea you were there. You had no idea I was there. I text you a picture of the judge, right? And I was like, look at this guy. He's a monster, right? Right before he was going to go hit his first of two dongs, and you say, turn around. And you were right behind me, like literally 20 rows or something like that behind home plate. That was fun. We got to hang out. But there was one thing. The people inquiring minds want to know, what the hell do you wear a sport jacket or why the hell do you wear a sport jacket to a Yankee game on a nice, beautiful, sultry, 76-degree night in the Bronx? Always have done that since I was a young lad. Always wear a blazer to a sporting event with a nice pair of shoes. You know, it's funny. As a society, we've really devolved. And people yeah. show up on airplanes now wearing things that I wouldn't wear to my bathroom if I was the only one in my house. But again, I'm from another bygone era, Dan, yes, so that's are. neither here nor there either. But I will tell you, you look great in your, I think it was like um, uh, the Bestie Boys t-shirt, yeah. and I look good in my my blue blazer. That's what they're calling your Yankees at 44 and 16, the Bestie Boys of summer here. It was the Beastie Boys. All right, we did it. We had fun. All right, let's talk about what's going on here, because this is not particularly pretty right here. You know, we did a Twitter Spaces Friday afternoon into the close with Danny Moses, who's our co-host of On the Tape podcast, and his ex-partners, uh, Porter Collins and, and Vinny Daniels, joined us. And at the time, Guy, you said something right before the end of that um, Twitter spaces, and right before the market closed, you thought today was going to be really ugly. Why did you mm -hmm. think we were going to get the sort of follow-through? We have the S&P that's down about 3% right now, and the NASDAQ down, you know, a little, I don't know, a little less than 4% here. This is one heck of a move, a heck of a follow-through. And late last week, that price action was a bit of a gut punch, and this is only that much worse. Just had that feel, you know, when you do it, as long as we've been doing it, you know, there's certain times, listen, as I say all the time, I'm wrong all the time. Uh, but every once in a while, you just sort of get that sniff. You've seen something before. It just doesn't have the right feel to it. Yeah. You could sort of see that you could feel the change in sentiment. You could start to see things underneath the hood that nobody else seemingly wants to acknowledge. We're going to talk about HYG in a few minutes as well. And it all sort of lines up. I mean, obviously, last week, you really didn't have any days we had a meaningful bounce. It seemed like every day that was down big closed right around the lows. We really haven't seen that probably since, what, early March, yeah. um, early May type of things in those back-to-back uh, -back months that we sold off. So that's why I thought I saw it. But we, Dan, as you know, and we're going to take a look at some levels after these tweet storms that people have been on. But yeah. some of the levels that we've talked about have come to fruition. Now, all of a sudden... Um, everybody seems to be talking about pretty much the same things we've been talking about 
literally since late summer, early fall of last year. Yeah. Well, you've been calling it all year, and I've been calling you Nostradami because you've had your your kind of finger on the pulse, I think, of equity market investors. And you and I have been saying for a very long time, as has Carter, that the S&P 500 was disconnected from a lot of the price action that we were seeing in large pockets of the stock market, you know, but also, and these were more speculative sort of groups, but we also saw the banks really starting to underperform late last year. So there's plenty of value groups that could have been telling you that, you know, let's, let's, Listen, this is a lot of noise here, right? Because here's the headline from Bloomberg this morning. Goldman and Morgan say stocks don't fully reflect risk. Well, I think these same strategists a few weeks ago were downplaying mm-hmm. those said risks, exactly right? right? And so sometimes, you know, you can just look at all of this stuff. Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley, he has been on this, okay? And we've been talking about Mike Wilson all year. He comes on Fast Money. He's been on our podcast. You know, so you've been saying 3750. I think you've tried to be constructive. You tried to put some framework from a valuation standpoint of why you thought 3750 made some sense. Mike's going a little deeper. He's a bit more bearish. I know that there's going to be a time we're all going to start to be a bit more constructive, but it is important to start here. Some of these strategists put some data, put some estimates ratcheted lower based on what the dollar is doing, based on what rates are doing, based on what input costs are, all that sort of stuff. So that's this whole mess of headlines. It seems to be a bit of a word salad, if you will. Talk to me about some of the performance though that you're seeing guy in some of these sectors here today and these xl names as you um yeah, well, as we call them in the ETFs. let's pull those up and just take a look i mean these are pretty significant move this is one day not even one day i mean it's one yeah. o'clock in the afternoon so there's still a few hours left in the day and we're seeing moves like this it's pretty dramatic in terms of some of those um analysts some of those economists listen mike wilson's done extraordinary work i don't think mike is really he has not really deviated from his view for quite some time. So I have the utmost respect for him. I have the utmost respect for most of these guys and gals. The problem is so many of them relate to this dance. I mean, all those things that you just talked about, all the inputs and those types of things, they've been out there literally for months. So if you're just paying attention, which, as you know, Dan, is the cheapest thing to do, you could come to serious the same conclusions that we came to months ago. They're just coming to it now. Now, Danny Moses will say, and he's correct. I mean, they have a vested interest in, in typically leaning towards the bullish side. I get it. And history will say that predominantly most of the time stocks do go up. But then you find yourselves in periods where things start to go pear-shaped. And that's what we were trying to point out late summer, early fall of last year. And it's all starting to come to fruition now. But as everybody starts to get on one side of that boat, um, yeah. my sense is it might be time to start to pivot. Now, I do agree there's going to be an overshoot. I just don't know where that overshoot's going to come from. In terms of the things today, I think you would agree. Uh, some of these energy moves are staggering, and it makes sense if you yeah. think about it. Uh, the most gains of the last year or so have been in the energy space. So if you have gains in there, it stands to reason on a day where the market's getting throttled over the last few days, you're going to try to take some profits in things you have profits in. We talked about that last week, by the way, trying to be tactical on energy there was going to be a period of time we could probably sell some of these names and get back into them. And I think that's what's coming uh, yeah. to a theater near you as well. So it's all playing out. And I hate to say this because I sound like an asshole and I'm choosing that word, but it's all starting to play out in the ways we've talked about literally for months. Yeah, well, we've been on it. Um, 
<clears throat> there's no victory laps here because none no, of us are. No, I'm not. Particularly... And that's what we're trying to do. And <clears throat> no, that's I, I mean, like, bring I, it I don't, up, but I, I don't feel good on days like today. I, I don't want the market to crash. I, I want an orderly sell off and, and expectations being reset. And just to put a little context, you've been saying 3750 in the S&P for months now. And what you and I thought, and we agreed on this, I think the whole way, you put some technical sort of views um, in and around this thesis here, but we were saying that 17 times for the S&P with a 5% earnings growth, okay, year over year, that would be about 220 or something like that. And you do the math, it gets you to 3740. That's how we were both in agreement on that level. Let's bring in Carter Braxton worth of mm-hmm. charting here. Carter does, he's a good friend. He's seen multiple cycles here. Um, I think you have been on the same side of this trade as we have. You often will take um, some tactical views about the way the charts are setting up. But walk us through, Carter, a little bit of the S&P 500 and what you're seeing here, because you just, you know, you've heard us say 3750 for a while. We're there. I think Guy and I both think that a lot of the other things that we're going to talk about as it relates to yields, as it relates to the dollar, we think that earnings growth is not going to be even probably that 5% for the S&P year over year, which would suggest that we're likely to overshoot these current levels here. Walk us through your work on the S&P 500. It's really important to us. Sure. I mean, we, we'll look at some charts in a second, and we can look at them now. But I mean, I, and the question is, it's always about knowing what one's time frame is. And, yeah. and all time frames are valid. And you just have to know who you are and what you are in the market. Because, you know, trying to day trade when really you're not that or trying to be long term when you're really a day trader is is the great sin. Stick to your discipline. And and so actually right here, we're down 9% in three sessions. You play for a bounce from here, right? There are very few instances where you have that extreme move and typically say, yeah, but sometimes it one more day and then another 7%. That's true too. But you know, at, at this point, you've got two gaps back to back in the S&P. That's fairly rare. And everyone is, is uh, gotten quite cautious just as after that 10% bounce, people were starting to talk about, hey, maybe the lows are in. And so longer term, nothing has changed. It's a great, great bull that is clearly in a bear. Carter, before we take a look at your charts, which you have a series of the S&P, I mentioned earlier, and you tweeted this out, so I'm at liberty to say, um, the great movie 1974, Chinatown, Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway. You were sporting a little Chinatown um, promo uh, picture over the weekend, were you yes, not? And you're effectively playing hurt today. Yeah, I'm playing hurt. I got I got a band. I had a Mohs surgery, I guess, is something I never heard of, but they take a little skin cancer off your nose and I'm all the better for it. Anyway, not uh, neither fish nor fowl. All good. Thank you for uh, in. And so S&P, um, look, 9%, three days. Everyone knows there's, I mean, I had a, a big institutional client come in today and saying, well, the Fed's going to save it. And I said, what are they going to do? He said, well, on Wednesday, they're going to do 75 or hundred base points. Market's going to crash and pivot end up huge up. Because they realize, hey, they're serious. I don't know. Is that how it's going to work? Uh, okay. This guy's running $22 billion large camp growth fund. Mm. We'll see. Um, I think it, you, you play for a bounce here intraday. It's a bit overdone. Um, the lines are, are pretty clear. We've broken to new lows. We know the NASDAQ 100, the great thing that it is, is down 33% from its peak. And we know that Russell's down 30 At this point, uh, tactically, hour to hour, you play for a bounce, I think. 
Yeah, I would just say, you know, it's interesting, Carter, and and we know we have this Fed meeting here, and we know the moving rates has had a lot to do with the weakness in equities yep. of late. And so this is a real hard one. And I think it goes back to, you know, what you're saying about style and, and what your skill sets are. And I think, you know, if you're not a trader, um, you know what I mean? Like if you're like kind of thinking, okay, things do look overdone and you have a longer term time horizon, of course, if you're willing to buy some lower, if you're a trader, you're basically whisk, risking, you know, a certain amount to kind of make that bet. Yeah, I have to stop yourself somewhere to the downside because this is the sort of day where things could get really ugly. But to your point, we know that we have this date and time. We know that the Fed is meeting tomorrow. We know that they're going to come out with a rate decision and some of their forward guidance on Wednesday afternoon. And that is certainly a catalyst. And easily, it could be the sort of thing, the lower we go today, the sharper we rally on the way out. So talk us to through some of these charts in the S&P 500, why you think on a short-term basis, we could get that move and we see the lines there you're going to walk us through it but on a longer term basis i mean i'm really of the mindset that the s&p will not bottom and you know and and start another leg of a proper bull market on its way back to the highs in january until it's down about 30 percent. so just give us a sense for what you're seeing in the charts right now please right sure so there's no magic to 30 because we know the nasdaq 100 is already down 33 right we know the rust list but i think if you just look at that chart there that's on the screen that bounce, that 10% bounce from the May 20 low just to last week before it all collapsed, if that bounce hadn't occurred, we'd gone down 10%, and then we'd gone down another nine, these three days, we'd be done. It's the bounce that keeps the bear alive. That, that's important to say, right? It's, it's sequencing. That bounce drew in a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, drew in a lot of hope, and now that's been unwound. But the sequencing here, and we'll look at some lines, would suggest that you get the next bound. So maybe we have a chart. Look at the next one. Now, that line kind of draws itself. The next one has some arrows on here. So does that mean it has to bounce there? No, but you've got very distinct sequencing. Things don't drop 30%, barring you have literally a Lehman Brothers type moment. And a lot of people say that's what's coming. We're about to have a credit event. But here and now, if you have the, the gumption, let's use that word, right? I think you play for the because everyone knows the Fed's coming and everyone knows uh, that the CPI is out. Um, you, you tactically play for rounds. Now, the sequencing and the next chart is, is just the, the, the percentage. And it's very clear. You get these 10% plus drawdowns and you have these 10% plus rallies. And so here's the new one. It's right down to that line. And I'm thinking you, you, you'd be or in a better world, maybe you sell a credit spread, right? You sell some. I mean, Dan, you would put that strategy on and be the person qualified to do it as, you know, selling something where the fear is high. The VIX gap today, gaps are very rare in the VIX and they get filled almost instantaneously. So a lot of fear uh, built in. But the longer term, we have a chart of that or two. The, the, the middle of the channel, so here's the thing. The beauty of the channel is it's not PE, right? And it's not, so uh, well, earnings could be this. And it's, it is what it is. The middle of the channel is, is 3650. Uh, and so 100 points would put us there. And the middle of the channel for the NASDAQ, which we also have here, the final chart on this sequence, we're already through it, right? 33% down. The bottom of the channel for the NASDAQ would be a 41% decline. Serious Thoughtful, reason. non-dogmatic, um, non-emotional work that you've done. And listen, I think your lines are exactly spot on. You know, we've, did, we have collectively lined up for different reasons getting to these levels, but it just goes to show you you know, you can, there's a number of different ways, I guess they say to skin a cat and we all get to the same place at the end of the day. One of the things that I've been concerned about, and maybe it's unfounded, although I start to think more and more people are coming to this realization, 
is the bond market and the volatility in the bond market. And I think we have some headlines that sort of illustrate that. I mean, one of the Fed's mandates, you know, I kid around all the time, Dan, that the Fed mandate is to make sure the NASDAQ and the S&P go higher. And, you know, 50% of me actually believes that. But one of their mandates is stable prices. And I got to tell you something. It's been anything but stable in the bond market, literally for the last 18 months. And some of these uh, headlines speak to exactly that, Dan. Yeah. And, and I guess what I would say is, and you make this point a lot, and I think it's really important. It always makes me take a, a step back and think about it a little bit. And I think that one of the things that I think when Carter shows us the charts is that, you know, a lot of these trends, you know, have kind of really been in place. This is over the last couple of years or so since, you know, the 10 year U.S. Treasury really bottomed out at levels that no one thought it would ever get to. But then those kind of moves, they happen all at once. And those are the things that I think make a lot of you know equity investors notice. And, you know, for me, you know, Carter said a couple of really interesting things about the SPX and the NDX. You know, one of the reasons why I'm thinking 30% is that I've seen so many stocks that have round tripped back to their pre-pandemic highs, which was February 2020. Mm -hmm. If the S&P did that, it would be to 30%. If the NDX did that, it would be to 40%. Those would be levels, I think, taking out that whole two-year period or more so that makes sense. But what's really changed, to your point, Guy, is the velocity in which yields are starting to go up here and the consensus around it. So, Carter, curious on your thoughts on that. I mean, you see all these headlines that we just posted because it just seems like now people are really starting to focus on the rate of change. Talk to us because you're going to look at different, uh, you know, you're going to look at the two, the five and the 10 and give us a sense of what that yield curve inversion that we briefly had today. And Guy, as I'll call you Nostradami, you were calling for that inversion and the 210 spread back in the spring. You also thought it was going to happen again. And I'm just curious, Carter, if your work shows that that inversion means that we're on the precipice of some increased period of volatility and many different risk assets. Well, it's all kind of synchronized, right? And simultaneous, just as as the dollar breaks out and two and five year yields and 10 years break out, Bitcoin, Ethereum break down, S&P breaks down. There's, it's, the, it's the nature of the tape, the macro sort of backdrop and the pieces of the puzzle all working together. Um, what is interesting today, frankly, is that oil, which was down substantially, is actually in the green. Energy stocks getting destroyed, of course, but that's because they're stocks, they're margin calls and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oil bucking the trend is, is important. But let's look at some yield charts and, and just go through uh, what, what we have. I mean, the beauty of this kind of thing is that this is one of the most well-documented uh, setups in history. You can go on Google, you can Google ascending wedge or ascending triangle. And what it is, is something that's time immemorial. You, you, you get flatter and flatter tops, and then you break out. It happens in stocks, it happens in currencies, it happens in lumber, it happens in oil. And so here's the two-year yield, and it broke out. The thing is, it's with a gap today, and it's getting a bit hysterical. And that's the question. Are we within a day or days of having some mean reversion both in the S&P and or in, in yields? The two-year, look at the five-year, look at the 10. It's the same chart. They are the same setup. It's all technical and nothing else. And look at the 10-year. Now, the 10-year is just now poking its head above those highs. But the point is, is that we can try to be there at big inflection points. I think that's exactly right. No, I think he's exactly right. I was just looking down to see where things are trading, and he's spot on. I mean, things are getting hysterical, I think is the word you used, and you're right. And typically, when you say a word like hysterical, I think of the word exhaustion or capitulation and we see it. We see it on the upside. Typically, we see it more violently on the downside. But no, make no mistake, 
I mean, you see it on both ends of the spectrum in terms of markets. And I think to a certain extent, you're starting to see a little capitulation in the bond market today. And maybe, uh, Dan, that's a healthy sign. I would submit it probably is. Maybe get to back to some semblance of normalcy. But again, my earlier point is bond market is effectively broken. And that, you know, for all you Fed watchers out there, that lies solely at the feet of this Federal Reserve and, and all the Fed, all the central bankers prior to. Yeah, well, Carter, Carter just mentioned a, a potential for a credit event, not saying that he's predicting it, but that's kind of working its way into, I think, the kind of market psychology here. Guy, you've been pointing to this HYG. This is a high yield bond ETF here. And so we've just seen, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you've been calling for this kind of move lower and you said, keep an eye on it. You're not saying that we're on the precipice of some big credit thing, but this is one of the inputs that you use to kind of help gauge that sort of sentiment. And I remember you saying on Market Call one afternoon a few weeks ago, you said that, you know, the HYG seemed to have found a bottom and you've been tracking that move up to you know, from 76 to 80. Well, it just fell out of bed in a really short period of time, down 9%. And you see it, it's trying to make a little bit of a spike bottom here. And again, this is not based on, you know, I, I guess any, any, any kind of headlines that we're seeing about any specific credits in general, but it's just really speaking to a widening of those spreads. Guy, why is this still important to you? And would this be a meaningful bottom if we were to kind of fill in that gap that we had this morning? Because just like Carter said, the VIX doesn't gap too frequently. The HYG doesn't gap too frequently either. Like that scene in Jaws, if you recall, the mayor, when he talks to Brody and he's, he's talking to Hooper and said, you know, you yell Barracuda on a beach and nobody bats an eye, you yell shark and you have a basically a panic on the 4th of July. And that's what's going on here. You know, people, stocks go up, stocks go down. It doesn't necessarily capture um, the P- Wall Street's attention. When credit, though, is a concern and you start hearing about problems in credit, then everybody starts to look up. And this is the best, one of the better barometers you know, out there to sort of track that. I'm not suggesting people trade it, but what I've said effectively again since the fall is this is something you have to watch because this will be the precursor of what I think an equity move will look like. And that's coming to fruition as well. It does ne- This doesn't trade. If we were to scroll out and look at the last 20 or so years, you only have four or five situations where this thing has come unglued. And this is actually one of those situations now. And it's been the precursor of a pretty violent move in the equity market. The reason I bring it up is credit is always a concern. And seemingly credit is when everybody's antenna starts to get up. And by the way, if there is a credit problem, that may force this Federal Reserve to pivot. Again, I don't think they should. But all these things, I mean, that's why I watch this so closely, because it has such meaning. And it's so important for not only the markets, but in terms of the economy as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about correlations um, earlier, and we're going to talk a little bit about the oil patch in general here. And those those equities clearly got correlated to the downward pressure in stocks today. But there aren't too many places where you're seeing flight to quality, right? Gold's not acting particularly well here. You know, you've seen a lot about crypto or, or Bitcoin in particular is not the inflation heads that a lot had billed it to be. Let's talk about the U.S. dollar here, Carter, because this one seems to be universally sort of that kind of flight to quality. We know that, you know, the U.S. dollar index, the Dixie, half of it is the euro. And we know what's going on over there. You know, in the spring, the Dixie broke out. And I think it a lot had a lot to do with kind of the assumptions about, you know, the potential for further economic weakness in Europe, given the war with Ukraine and Russia here. We had that pullback. We bounced off of that uptrend here. What's going on with the Dixie? Well, the beauty of this is, I mean, I mean, I mean 
been listening uh, or anyone who hasn't been listening, isn't it the same chart as the two-year and the five-year and the 10-year? Of course, because, and, and that's the important thing. If you can remove all the fundamentals, the great inflection points are almost always technical. It's fundamentals that cause it, but the setups are optically clear time and time again. Does this look exactly like Bitcoin in reverse or Ethereum? Does it look just like the two-year or the five-year? It does, which is to say, while not infallible, your best chance of making money at an inflection point is not waiting for the minutes to come out or waiting for an earnings release. It's to look at the chart and then is there a foreshadowing of what's coming? This is no different than the two, five, and 10-year. The presumption is it too, hence the green arrow, will make a new high or in the case of Bitcoin, Ethereum, a new low. I think, I think that's a great point, and I'm with you on that. By the way, now everybody seemingly is talking about levels in the dollar-yen and, and sort of critical levels if and when we get to them on the upside, what it potentially could mean for not only U.S. equities, but now they're talking about the global equity market. But we'll get to that at another time. But obviously, you talk about the dollar. It goes hand-in-hand hand with commodities. And what I've been impressed with is the strength of crude oil, even in light of the fact that the dollar is pretty much only going straight up. We have a crude chart. And I think you can speak to some of the lines that you drew, but this is a pretty orderly move off that blow off top that we talked about when it happened in March. We thought it would pull back. It actually pulled back more than I thought, but here we are. Basically, we've been following that uptrend line. This seems pretty orderly to me. I think what you will say correctly so is now is the time if you're bullish in crude oil, now the bulls need to prove themselves vis-a-vis that high level we saw a few months ago. Well, that's right. I mean, so much was taken care of. Again, it was it was six sessions. It was a Friday, um, uh, February 25th. And, and uh, by uh, the first Monday, six sessions later, we were up 45%, up $40 a barrel. Um, that took care of a lot. And here we are. Think about the news since. How much worse uh, the Ukraine thing is. How much worse the bottlenecks are. How much greater the demand is. China, gas, summer's driving. crude still below where it was. There's a, there's a discounting function and mechanism in markets, and sometimes a lot is discounted quickly, just like the HYG presumptively now is discounting. Right well, well, Carter, I, what I think was the most interesting thing going on today, and we just referenced it, though, is when you had, you know, the stock market was down 3.5%, the S&P 500, and now it's down. It's kind of back, you know, kind of banging around those mm-hmm. lows here. The XLE that tracks the large integrated, we know three names, uh, Exxon, Chevron, Schlumberger make up, you know, 45% of the weight of that ETF. <clears throat> that was down, you know, 7 8% at its lows today. That broke out last month, had that huge move. And here we are, almost got to its 50-day moving average here. And you see the lines that I drew. I know that you would never draw hacky lines like that, Carter. But you see the intersection between the uptrend that had been in place since late last year and then that breakout level from you know early May or so. We almost got there. And I just thought that that you know, correlating to what was going on in the broad market was really interesting, despite the fact that crude was down 2% at its lows. Now it's green on the day. And then the other one would be the OIH, the oil services. And when you look at this one here, I mean, this had a heck of a move lower over the last, you know, couple days or so. But again, that is way above its 150 day, got very near its 50 day. What did that price action mean to you today at the lows and its ability to kind of rally with crude over the last couple of hours? Well, so, well, of all the sectors, you could say that energy stocks have the best so-called fundamentals in the sense that the underlying commodities up here at the $118, $120 a barrel. 
there's still stocks, right? And so in a day where equities are being sold, where margin calls are happening, uh, they will go down as much as other stocks, or if not more, because their they're cyclical and their, their beta is high, typically. So the question is, do you take advantage of the weakness? Maybe not after day one, but at some point here, let's say uh, tomorrow, or, or you sell premium. You can become the insurance company. For those who are fearful, you sell, you sell puts. And if you don't want to be naked, those things, you do it as a, as a, as a credit spread. And uh, the idea is that you're willing to buy energy shares lower and get paid to do it, um, or they never get there and you keep all the premium. That's good technique. Yeah. yeah, and the other good technique is your technique, which correctly said Bitcoin would trade down probably uh, below twenty five thousand. Uh, you've been saying it for a while. Well, once again, you had your crystal ball out in a major way because here we are, Carter Braxtonworth. I know again, you're not one to take victory laps, but you've really nailed the Bitcoin spot on as well. Well, this is messy stuff. I mean, I guess here's the thing: this is the this is the ultimate gambling chip, right? In the sense that it's you can't even put a beta on it, if, if you will. It doesn't even have enough history, per se. But what we know is it, it can really move. And so isn't it exactly the reciprocal of the two-year note and the five-year? Of course it is. It's the same setup. And these, while not infallible, often get resolved as each one of these is getting resolved. But this is getting resolved dynamically. I don't think there's any sort of reason to consider buying unless you get to 20. And at 20,000, you'd be back to those uh, Thanksgiving tops of about three years ago. Uh, I think you become a large buyer at 20,000. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And, and we've shown some long-term charts, and especially on a log basis. And the, the 2017 high in Bitcoin was about 20,000. And then it really crashed and spent a couple of years in what a lot of people were calling a long crypto winter. And then in 2020, it picked its head up from, I think, its lows. It got Bitcoin got down to 3,500 or something like that. And that breakout of that 20,000 level was important, right? You know, four years later or something like that, you know, that 20 something number in and around there has kind of been support. We got as low as what, 23,000 today. But Carter, my, my sense is, is that Again, we're going to need some time. This was a frenzy and, and a lot of things. And it wasn't just Bitcoin and Ethereum this time. There was tons of meme coins. There were NFTs. There's a lot of like, you know, kind of pockets of risk in and around this ecosystem. And there was a lot of capital that was raised by, by VCs to invest in the ecosystem over the last few years. I'm just curious when you see this sort of behavior, because a couple of weeks ago, you know, in mid-May, we were saying, well, Bitcoin was exactly where it was the year prior at that point. But down from sixty nine thousand, right down to twenty nine thousand. What, what what do you think about? I mean, yes, there's going to be great trading opportunities in these and Bitcoin and, and Ethereum in particular. But it really might not mount a, a meaningful high and and you know or, or, or a retest of those highs for years to come. And guy, after he's done, I'd love to hear because you've been talking about it. You have one really good reason why you think that might come again in the not so distant future. Yeah, I mean, so just in, in, independent of one can suspend the fact that it says Bitcoin on that chart yeah. and what one knows or thinks one knows about Bitcoin and just look at it as a chart. The problem, the lower you go, the more people you leave above, right? Which is the definition of risk by people who are hurt, who aren't willing to take the loss, think that it'll come back, who are white knuckling it, they'll say, I'll end run this thing if I have to. I'm not going <laughs> to give it up and have it then bounce. And, 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 and so, but they're interested sellers. They want if given the chance to get their money back. So the lower you go, the more stranded there are people. Not all of them. Some of these people have dumped it already. But the point is, you've just, okay, how about this? 
you know what it's like as a kid to be a few feet under the surface of the pool. How about when you jump off the high dive and you're 20 feet down and you're looking at the surface like, wow, that's a long way back. We're a long way now from the highs. Those highs are not in reach anytime soon. And you mentioned the word years. That's certainly possible. Yeah, and I'm just going to chime in. You asked me you know, to follow up in terms of what could potentially be the catalyst to take it through that 66,000 level. It would be this Federal Reserve pivoting once again because they're getting spooked by whatever they could potentially get spooked by. I guess the market is front and center. But if this Fed, for whatever reason, were to say, you know, inflation is no longer a concern, despite the numbers that we continue to see, I think, Dan, that would be, to me at least, that's the green light for crypto to go, specifically Bitcoin, to go higher. Yeah. So this was one thing, you know, um, we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, Tesla, Elon Musk. He is like the meme king. And we're going to talk a little bit about Tesla here. But I think it's also important to note that last year when he was pushing Dogecoin, Tesla to start 2021 out, they put over a billion dollars of Bitcoin on their balance sheet, if you guys recall that in a way. And so one of the things that I find so interesting about the Tesla story, now we have him trying to make a bid for Twitter. He was pushing Dogecoin which basically went, you know, up, you know, thousands of percent and then back to zero. Okay. And then, you know, obviously his stock is just a meme um, for all intents and purposes. But, you know, over the weekend, I think overnight, he put out an email memo to his employees talking about a very tough quarter. We know there's a little more than two weeks left in the quarter. And there were some interesting quotes about it. They're not dealing as well with the supply chain issues as that he had just guided to in late April or so. This stock is down nearly 50% from its November highs. It's down nearly 40% um, on the year. We know there's a lot of other things going as it relates to he has tons of margin loans against his holdings. Um, That's where his predominant wealth is. And obviously that and SpaceX, which is a private company, and he's trying to buy Twitter with equity. And that equity is going to come from a margin loan from Tesla shares. So it's all pretty complicated here. Carter, talk to me a little bit because I look at this thing, man, and I see if this thing gets back towards 600, I see an air pocket down to like maybe 475. And what's interesting about 475 or just above 400, that's where the stock was trading before it had that late 2020 breakout when it was announced it was going into the S&P 500 and the stock doubled in a matter of months. Talk to us on the technicals and guy, thread the needle after that on all of these meme issues going on with Tesla and Twitter and Doge and Bitcoin, because I really feel like this thing has a lot further to fall, in my opinion. Well, so we're down 50%. And the, the one thing day to day that's, I'm not encouraging, it's, it's better than the market. If you see on the chart, Tesla's not taken out its, its uh, late May lows, right? Goldman has, and most stocks have, uh, banks, uh, Apple has, and most, uh, and so forth. So, um, I'm with you on the downside. It's just that it, um, it's not at the break juncture right here. Now. And I'll just add, I know we're sort of running over here. You know, when, when Tesla reported their last quarter, the stock, I think. I think Guy froze here. Um, but I think he was going to say that it was the immaculate quarter. It was the quarter that everybody was waiting for. If you're a bull on the stock, the sort of, um, you know, margins that they had, the profitability that they had, their ability to speak to um, justified, you know, maybe the, the move and the subsequent move we talked about. It's, it's not going to get much better than this. And we thought you'd see a sell off. And then the Twitter thing happened. And we said it again that the stock Tesla was vulnerable to the downside. And here we are. I'm not a hater. I, you know, I, I, quite frankly, again, I'm agnostic about most of these things, you know, so 
with that said, you know, I still think there's further room to the downside. And this is one of those things, Dan, where the lower it goes, the more selling you're going to see. It becomes at a certain point, the same way it was self-fulfilling on the upside, to a certain extent, it becomes the same way on the downside. Yeah. And I guess I would just add one point because of all those margin loans that I was just speaking about, and especially if he really is going to follow through with this Twitter bid. I mean, you know, he has to borrow against those shares. If there are margin calls, then those who own those loans are going to sell the stock and it could create a really nasty sort of sell off. And then you throw in valuation all that sort of stuff, psychology around it. It is a cult. I think it pops. That's my two cents. I'm being dogmatic. You're not. All right, let's see the last name before we get out of here. Carter, you were on Market Call last week and you were highlighting some of the performance or relative outperformance of old tech names. And we went through a bunch of um, them. Now, one name that I'd throw in this bucket would be Oracle. It's only down 25% um, on the year. It's down, obviously, uh, a bit more from its 52-week and all time highs you see i just drew one simple line that was the lows from early 2021 it gets you to about 60 you know the implied move in the options market is about five and a half bucks or so about eight percent they report after the close um tonight and this is one where again you know they do a lot of business outside the u.s so um you know that strong dollar is going to definitely be um an input as you think about margins and their earnings growth here the other one i would just say is that they've moved to this recurring licensing model here and as their customers start to reduce headcount, which we're starting to see, you're going to see a fall off in some demand. No one's really pricing that yet. The last thing I just want to show real quickly is like a 22-year chart on a log basis, okay? And if you look where this thing has stopped Carter to the penny back there during the financial crisis, back there during the pandemic, are we going to see 50 in this thing and then... Guy, take us out on your fundamental view on Oracle after that. Buddy. Yeah, I mean, I don't like Oracle, right? It's not in that list of sort of uh, old world tech that was more IBM and yep. Sam, in the sense that those were stocks exhibiting impressive relative strength at or near 52-week highs and generally acting well. Oracle is the exact opposite. It, it acts terribly. It's one of the worst performing old tech, new tech. And yes, I'm with you. Lower and down to that green line. Listen, the, the overshoot to the upside was on, if you go back and, and, and look at it, people were flocking to Oracle as they basically started running their business a little bit better at the same time that they were flocking or fleeing, I should say, out of high valuation tech names into valuations that made more sense. And I think that's why you saw the move in Oracle from about 58, I think almost to a hundred bucks. Now, to your point, Dan, we'd round trip. Now, people will say, and I'll be one of them, that at these levels, I don't think you're going to get obliterated in Oracle. Again, valuation is reasonable, but the point you made is exactly that. When you hear about companies with layoffs, that does not augur particularly well for the likes of an Oracle with a recurring revenue stream based on the amount of people that buy their shit. Pardon my French. But that's it, Dan. You want to say anything as we get out of here? Yeah. I mean, listen, um, you know, these are these days I think that it really makes sense to kind of take a step back, sometimes maybe turn off the TV, close your Twitter, you know, think about what your objectives are, what your long-term time horizon, what your style is, and not get particularly too emotional. Don't let things, and I think, Carter, you said this pretty well, don't let trades turn into investments, right? Don't convince yourself of things because, listen, you know, that whole, and Guy, you've been saying 
this for a long time is that, you know, it was okay to buy the dip when you knew the Fed put was there and they were always going to jawbone things. You know, to this point, they almost need this kind of the markets to come in and really underprice the potential for them to kind of thread the needle as it relates to what they need to do with tamping down inflation. It's going to be really hard. I just don't think we're coming out of this anytime soon. And I think the likelihood of any of those strategists, those fundamental strategists who think that the S&P is going to be taking a shot back at those all-time highs made in early January this year, I see Carter shaking his head. It's not happening. So whatever investable capital that you have to allocate towards new positioning in the market, understand that you're going to have, in my opinion, and I don't mean to sound so certain, plenty of opportunities over the next few weeks or months to average into these positions. Guy, give it to me on that, because I think that's really important from your standpoint, from a psychological standpoint about trading through a bear market and really trying to think longer term about how to allocate fresh capital. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to, I mean, I'm going to try to make this brief because it just said my internet is unstable, but I'll say this, um, and we've said it for a while, there are going to be some mind-numbing, face-ripping rallies over the next couple of weeks that nobody's well, I think his. I think he got unstable. I think the point was, Carter, you're going to get rallies sure. like late March, where we just rally and we keep it's going. So I think it's thirty-seven right? fifty. That's right. But they're a part of the process. It's sequencing calls for that. But ultimately, you have to have true capitulation, where a duration and magnitude are such that people don't want to be in the stock market. We don't have that. That's it, Dan. That's it, Carter. Thanks, everyone. We went 11 minutes late, but today probably warranted. That's today's market call. We'll be back tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern. I want to thank our sponsor, FactSet. I also want to thank Open Exchange for powering us. Dan and I will be back tomorrow at 1, just the two of us. Uh, we'll have Carter back on Wednesday. And of course, he. That's EY from SoFi will be on with us on Thursday. Carter Braxtonworth, you have stable internet. You are a stable technician. Thanks for joining us, man. Guy Adami, I'll see you later on Fast Money. Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone.